This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Storer, and I'm so excited to welcome Natalia Richards to the show today. Natalia is here to talk about the early years of Anne Boleyn. Welcome. Thank you so much, Steph. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. I'm really, really delighted. So thank you for asking me. Oh, we're so happy to have you. So before we start the show, I just want to mention to all the listeners that unlike some of our previous episodes, you're not going to hear your name with the actual questions this time, Um, but sit tight and I will give you all a shout out at the end of the show. So moving right along. Now we all know Anne Boleyn as Henry VIII's second wife because of whom he split with both Catherine of Aragon and well, the entire religion. (laughs) So she was Elizabeth I's mother. She was beheaded for probably a few made-up charges even, all kinds of interesting and dramatic things. But what we don't necessarily know is who she was before she was the Anne Boleyn that we know. If we could start maybe with just a quick little biography of her. So why don't you tell us, if you will, about Baby Anne, childhood Anne, young adult Anne, maybe, before we jump into the questions. Yes, absolutely. Well, firstly, Anne did not come from a poor background. I think everyone thinks that, uh, well, you know, she came from nowhere, etc., etc. But, you know, she was actually born into wealth and privilege through the hard work and the canniness of her Boleyn, Butler and Howard ancestors. For instance, her great-grandfather, Geoffrey Boleyn, uh, went from MP for London to Lord Mayor in 1457, and then he received a knighthood. And through his skill as a merchant and a tenant of various manors, um, he was rich enough to purchase Blickling Hall in Norfolk, and also helped to marry a wealthy heiress called Anne Hu. Now, when he died, his son William, he married um, Margaret Butler, the co-heir of the 7th Earl of Ormond. Now, this was a fantastic marriage that brought land and wealth for her father's one of the richest men in uh, richest men in England through the wool trade. And William felt that for him, the court was the best way forward. And in 1492, he fought for King Henry VII in France and he inherited further lands adding to the Boleyn's growing wealth. Now, it was in Norfolk that his son, young Thomas Boleyn, married Elizabeth Howard, another great marriage in the making. Now, Thomas Howard wasn't the premier duke in England at that time, that was the Duke of Buckingham, but the ambitious Howards were still finding their way back into favour, and they were very eager to prove their loyalty to King Henry VII. Now, Thomas Howard became a lieutenant of the North, and the Howards began to, have their, began to get their rise to fame and, and fortune. Elizabeth Howard, who was the daughter of Thomas Howard, who married Thomas Boleyn, she proved highly fertile. And Anne was probably born around 1500, and she enjoyed the company of her brothers and sisters on the Blickling estate in Norfolk. We don't know when Thomas and Henry died, her young brothers, but we do know that George and Mary survived. At first glance, it appears we actually know very little about Anne's early years. We know she probably had a nursemaid or a governess called a Mary Orchard, but we don't really know the details of her day-to-day life. And we can only imagine what it, you know, what it would have been like, though, as she learned to read and write and say her prayers and played with her siblings in the Norfolk fields, heady with the smell of lavender and scattered with sheep, you know, um, and toddled home and, and, you know, with her, with her brother and sister. Um, 
but away from imaginings, we can actually build a framework of what was going on in the world that we can place Anne in. And the more you delve into the period when Anne was born, and we're talking here of the reign of Henry VII, the more you can piece together Anne's early life at Blickling with her Berlin family. So as you, you know, there were the usual marriages and deaths and uh, a lot taking place politically. Prince Arthur was about to marry his Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon. And it was a, a really exciting family. Um, uh, sorry, and a really exciting time as a family celebrated the betrothal of Prince Arthur's sister, Margaret, to James of Scotland. And then, of course, Arthur died. So there was, it was a, an interesting era altogether. Um, but we, we are still under the old Henry VII. Now, when Prince Henry came to the throne, we've got a brand new era here, a brand new golden opportunity and great, great hope for men like Thomas Berlin. He'd married well. He'd shown his loyalty to the old king. He knew the court was his best means of advancement. But of course, he was living a long way away from London. But then his luck changed. So there he is in, in Norfolk with the young Anne and Mary and little George and you know, life's trucking along, but then his father died in 1505 and he inherited Hever Castle in Kent, among other properties. And he realised actually Hever would be far more convenient for travelling to court and back, being only a day's ride. So this is where he'd base his family, an easy ride through the countryside to Dartford and then to Greenwich. And so Anne, along with her older sister Mary and her brothers George, Henry and Thomas, began their life at Hever. Now, it's likely Thomas Boleyn's widowed mother, Lady Margaret Butler, also lived with them. And it's here Anne would have got to know her neighbours, such as the Wyatts at Allington Castle and the Buckinghams at nearby Penshurst. Thomas Boleyn had uh, met the regent, Margaret of Austria, in 1512, while he was on official business in Mechelen in Flanders, which was the seat of the government of the Low Countries. Now, Margaret of Austria was a daughter of the Emperor Maximilian of Austria and Mary of Burgundy. And in 1507, she was appointed regent of the Netherlands for her brother's son, Charles. He actually went on to be Charles V, which comes into Anne's story. Margaret was very pro-English and she exchanged frequently letters with the young King Henry VIII, who was very fond of her. And she held a fantastic, bright, brilliant, cultured court at Mechelen just outside Brussels. She had a very, very good relationship with Thomas Boleyn, as I've said, and Margaret was very pro-English. Uh, and at the time, the young Prince Charles was actually betrothed to keep Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary Tudor. And for all intents and purposes, that marriage was actually going ahead. So, you know, Thomas might have seen an opportunity there for his daughter to perhaps serve Mary and Charles in, in, the, in the Burgundian um, court. We don't know. But either way, at some point, Thomas asked if Anne could serve Margaret at her court as one of her 18 filled d'honneurs. This was a huge ask because places were scarce. Mechelen was the capital of the Burgundian Netherlands and the, uh, the Low Countries were the political and economic centre of Northern Europe. It was an incredibly cosmopolitan city, attracting the social elite entrepreneurs, enlightened thinkers, just about everybody wants to get a place at the regent's court. Well, Margaret was fond of Thomas and they agreed and Anne was actually sent on her way to Mechelen. So Anne stayed there with the regent for about a year, learning manners, etiquette, all manner of things we'll discuss later on. And uh, she was taken under Margaret's wing 
And you can imagine as a young girl, Anne was only probably about 12, 13 years old. This is a pretty scary thing for a girl to leave her home in Kent and to go to a strange foreign court. It must have been very, very difficult for her initially. But she enjoyed being at Margaret's court and she flourished, absolutely flourished. And, you know, placements depended on really um, alliances. England had always been a great friend of the Burgundian court. But then things changed. And suddenly, rather than um, Henry VIII's sister Mary being betrothed to the young uh, Charles, Everything suddenly changed. Charles's betrothal to Mary, Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's young sister, was broken off. And it was suddenly decided she was going to go and marry Louis in France. So, oh my goodness, there's Anne in Mechelen. Thomas has probably, you know, moved head on high water to get her there. And he's now saying to the regent, OK, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm afraid I want to take my daughter away now. She's going to go and serve in France. Now, Margaret wouldn't have been um, very pleased at this. France was her deadly enemy. She liked Anne. She'd been training Anne up. And, you know, she was expecting to see this girl polished and finished to the high standard that she expected of her girls. And suddenly Thomas wanted to take her away. So she agreed, but she did drag her feet a bit over this. And we don't know why. It's possible that because um, Margaret was in Zealand, she didn't get the letter saying, I need my daughter back, please, to go to France. Um, or maybe she was just miffed. We don't know. But either way, we find out that Anne is sent over to France to join the new court where Mary Tudor is now going to marry King Louis of France. So she joins her sister over there and other English ladies. And Anne is there for about seven years. So she's had this wonderful um, beginning in Mechelen, where she starts starts her um, education, and then she continues it over the next seven years in France before she comes back to England as an incredibly polished young lady. And what more can I say? <laughs> Thank you. That was so interesting. So now I just want to talk really quickly about what you said about her birth year before we get into France, because we definitely have a lot of questions about her being in France, but I'm just going to rewind a little bit. And I wanted to just kind of clarify, because I know that there are kind of controversial dates being thrown around as far as her birth. Are you confident? I think you you mentioned maybe around 1500. Are you confident that that's where, like when she was born? Because we, some of our listeners and we've all heard that it's around what you said, you know, 1500, 1501, maybe 1503. And then we've heard as late as 1507, 1509, and then even maybe 1513. Why is there such speculation of, uh, when it comes to Anne about her birth year or her birth order with her siblings? Um, how come we're so unclear on that? It's extraordinary, isn't it? Everybody sort of disagreed, really. But I think the consensus really is about 1500 to 1501 now. For a long time, it was about 1507. I think it's really based on looking at um, the age when a young girl would, would go over to a court. Um, you know, if Anne was only, say, six or seven years old, would would she have gone over to Margaret in Mechelen at that, at that stage? That is a very, very young child. Um, 
And, the, you know, the letter she wrote in France, which we all know this letter, we've looked at the handwriting, um, it doesn't seem to be the writing of a of a very young girl. Um, and also the meaning doesn't seem to be that of a child. I sort of, I change from, I don't know, 1500 to maybe a little bit later. I, I go with the earlier date because also I think, Anne was very, very influenced by what she saw in Mechelen. And we know this, we, we know the influence that it had on her. And also in um, in France with Marguerite. And it, she was at that age then, if we say the age of about 13, 14, when she went to France, that is the exact perfect age for picking up ideas and everything. And I, I just don't think a young child would have been particularly influenced and Anne was, and Anne was. We we know this from how she behaved back in England, and she was also, you know, Claude asked to keep her on in France. They were about the same age. Would she have kept or wanted a, a young girl, a young child there in her court? And the same with um, Mary Tudor when she married Louis. She wanted a girl who could speak French, who was fluent, fluent, who could help her out. Not really, you know, a baby. So, what, I mean, what do you think, Steph? Would you agree with that or do you think earlier? Oh, I definitely it? agree with it. Yes, yes. And I've formed my my thoughts, you know, prior to this conversation. Mm. I, I agree that I think that she would have been too young to mm. head over. But, you know, like I said, there's so many, there's so many different controversial kind of mm. evidence, I guess. Mm. Um, so we just want to clear that for, for our listeners. But I think, I think we're all, all on your side on that one. I think so. I mean, there's an interesting lesson. Um, that that letter when she replied to Henry saying, um, I think it's on the Tudor's Dynasty website, um, when she says, you know, that, she, that the king would bother to talk to such a young and artless girl, you know, and I, I think, well, if she was 22, young and artless, would she have been younger? Do you know, it, that sort of makes me wonder a little bit. <laughs> Right, right. I wish we could just ask. <laughs> no, I know. It just muddies the water slightly. Would you be, Would you think yourself young and artless at the age of 22? You might at 16. I don't think I thought that about myself ever. No, no, not at all, not at all. But you might if you were about 16, but then that will blow all my theories out of the water. So, <laughs> No, we'll stick with your theories then. Okay, so what about her relationship with her siblings? Growing up with her... With her, you said she had two brothers for a while, and then and then her one sister, Mary. What was her relationship with everybody like? That's correct, yes. I mean, um, in the early years, we don't really know. We have little to, to describe how she would have felt. We don't know when Thomas and Henry died. And I do wonder, actually, if Anne would have got on with them and how she would have got him on with them. Um, on their deaths, of course, only Anne, Mary and George remained. Now... Back in England as adults, and sorry about that. So then, three brothers. Sorry, at one time. So there were three brothers at one time in her. Yes, that's, that's correct. Yes, right. Gotcha. Okay, so three brothers, and then we don't know when the two died. So I guess we get. Let's just focus then on Mary and, and George. George. That's right. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so back in England as adults, um, Anne appears to have been closer to George as they they shared the same interest in the new learning. Um, in 1522, on her return, George gave Anne a French translation and continued to support her. Now, George described himself as a setter forth of the word of God. And it was actually George who persuaded Anne to give Simon Fisher's pamphlet, 
um, the supplication for the beggars to the king, who was very impressed. And it was this mutual love of God's word that united Anne and George. And so we get the impression that they were very close intellectually. Um, other things too may have brought them together, but I do think it was you know, primarily their beliefs. Um, now, as to Mary, we get the impression that Anne had little in common with Mary. Mary was possibly not on the same intellectual level. I don't know. She may have been less stimulating company to Anne. Um, we don't hear of Mary's religious opinions, and maybe religion concerned her less. If Mary had beha- misbehaved in France, well, Anne kept herself very well clear of that. And it's possible she did not agree with Mary's morals and becoming mistress of King Henry. Um, Now, later, when Mary married William Stafford without royal permission, Anne was furious at the slight to her position as queen. And Mary had to turn to Cromwell for help. Now, this doesn't suggest any close relationship with Anne. And even Mary's own father had to be forced to provide help for her. So I think naturally it was Anne and George who were close because of their their interests. And Mary, we don't hear so much of. We don't know. What do we know of Mary's interests? We just don't hear of them. Okay. And now if we move a little bit ahead to her suitors, pre-Henry VIII, we've gotten a lot of questions about Mm -hmm. Henry Percy, Thomas Wyatt. (laughs) Um, Do we know any other suitors? Mm, well, there is no mention of anyone in France, so we have absolutely no idea if she was wooed at all there. Um, it is possible there were flirtations, because Claude ran a very strict and pious household. But it wasn't dull. Claude loved travelling, even though often pregnant, and she was very cheerful and easygoing. She loved music and dancing, so there was plenty of opportunity for Anne to shine. So, the, But the only, um, the only person we know who was considered as a husband for Anne was James Butler, the son of Piers Butler, the 8th Earl of Ormond. So there was nothing going off in France, as far as we can tell. But back in home, the Butler problem was raising its head. Now, James was a little older than Anne, and we have a portrait of his father, Piers. And James may have had the same red colouring, we don't know. Um, He had fought at Tarawan as a soldier, was injured, and now was lame. So he was possibly more soldier than courtier. He was in Wolsey's household at this time, at the English court, and we don't know what he felt about the situation about marrying Anne. Personally, I don't think he sounds like Anne's type at all. But why was a marriage between Anne and James even being mooted? Well, the situation was really quite complicated. Anne's great-grandfather, the 7th Earl of Ormond, with no male heirs, um, he left his Irish estates to Anne's grandmother, Margaret, and her sister. Well, for years, the states were managed by a cousin, Piers Butler, who on the Earl's death felt they were his. He'd been doing all the work. They were his. Well, Thomas Boleyn felt the lands were his through his grandmother. And anyway, King Henry didn't recognise Piers's claim and was on Thomas's side. Now, Thomas, Anne's uncle, came up with the idea, Thomas Howard, came up with the idea that if Anne married James Butler, son of Piers, the title of Countess would come to her and the butlers could have the lands. But Thomas Boleyn wasn't keen on this at all, and the problem kept going round and round. Now, James and Anne probably met at the Field of Cloth of Gold in 1520 in France, then again at the English court in 1522, where James was actually a guest, I say guest, of sorts in Ward's household. 
he was actually eager to return to Ireland to be back in the field with his men, um, attending his father's lands and businesses. And of course, if they did marry, Anne and James, were, well, they may well have lived at the English court, but it's unlikely. So it's more likely she would have gone back to um, his home at Kilkenny Castle, which I must say, having visited, is absolutely beautiful, overlooking the River Nore in Ireland. But other than James, we don't know of any um, serious offers before Henry. There was nothing really we know of. Well, then that's going to answer our next question, because <laughs> one of our other listeners was was wondering if while she was in France, if Anne would have had any propositions or if she would have maybe stayed in France and preferred marrying a Frenchman. Do you think that she had any inkling to stay where she was or did she always want to leave? Um, why did she stay in France? Um, well, preferring to stay in France. Well, it rests on two things, really. If she's going back to an arranged marriage or if she's going back as a single girl. So she's in France and Cardinal Wolsey, Henry VIII's Lord Chancellor, wanted to resolve the Boleyn family issue problem by marrying Anne to James. So we know that. We've just said that. Um, and the problem's been going on for years and years. And, you know, some writers think that Anne may not have known about James, but I think it's unlikely. I think she would have, she would have known about what was happening. But, you see, by 1521, Anne was really her own person and maybe not quite the dutiful daughter who arrived at, arrived at Mechlin all those years ago. She'd seen the freedom that Marguerite enjoyed, and she'd become used to the company of strong women who made their own choices where possible. So to come back home to England and arrange marriage was probably not what she really wanted. Now, if there'd been no marriage proposal in view, I think she would have been very happy to return. She'd been abroad in Mechlin since a young girl, and she spent all those years in France. Her family, her home was in England, and the English court would have been surrounded by those she loved the best, particularly George. Now, having met him again at the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520, after all those years, they would have had a great deal to discuss. And, you know, ultimately, a place at the English court was her family's aim, serving together in Queen Catherine's household. So, you know, I think Anne would have been happy to go back with no match in you know on the horizon, but it was maybe a little concerned to say the least of what would happen if she was forced to marry James Butler. Now you mentioned that it was kind of unusual for her to be sent to France because of how few quote spots there were open in the court. Mm -hmm. Um so one of our listeners actually also wanted to kind of elaborate on that, wondering if it was common for people to be sent to foreign courts rather than going to their own. Did that happen often in England at the time? Okay, well, if you have a certain upper class, it was customary in England to send a child away at age seven or eight um, to continue their education in a noble household, you know, with all that involved. Um, you know, and there they could learn how to run a large establishment, mix with important people, generally widen their horizons, etc. But placing children at a royal court abroad, like Anne, was not really common. Places were few and far between. Noble families were ambitious to get their children the finest connections and education. And you also needed a pedigree. 
Now, the Duke of Suffolk's children, um, his stepdaughter Madeline and daughter Anne Brandon, were placed at Mechlin, but they were very well connected. And Anne's family, of course, had pedigree from both her Boleyn and Howard families. But it's also not possible without a good personal relationship with the rulers of either Burgundy or France, which are the two finest courts in Europe. Um, Thomas Boleyn was fortunate enough to develop a great relationship with Margaret and Mechlin, but politics and friendships could quickly change, as we saw when Anne was suddenly sent to France due to the English-French alliance. On the whole, then, I would think it was more common to send children to noble houses in their own country than abroad. If you could manage to get your child in a court somewhere, well, good for you, but I think it would be pretty tough. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. Our next question is kind of out of left field, but, and it doesn't necessarily even have anything to do with what we're talking about, but it's a fun one because we generally think of Anne Boleyn as this kind of dark haired <laughs> you know, beautiful, unique looking um, enchantress when it came to Henry VIII. But now we've recently been hearing things that she was possibly red haired. Um, I don't know. Think about that. No, and I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> um, I would say definitely not. I feel very, very strong, strongly about the fact that she was brunette. Now, Thomas Wyatt at that time described her as such. She was also described at the time as having a, a swarthy or dark complexion. Um, that doesn't sound very flattering, but, you know, she wasn't fair as, say, a redhead would be. If you had red hair, you obviously have a fairer skin. So I don't think maybe she was blackhead, maybe more of a chestnut. You know, uh, Queen Elizabeth's red hair probably came from Henry's genes. Now, there is a sketch that may be Anne Boleyn. Do you know the one I mean in the casual dress where she's taken from the side? We think she looks pregnant. She's sort of in disability, you know, on the bonnet. Yes, yep. And mm -hmm. if you look at that one, obviously it looks like she's got fair hair. And I think this is what people are perhaps locking into. But is that really Anne? I know it's labelled Anne, but is it Anne? I think the National Portrait Gallery um, picture shows her, the one that shows her the chestnut coloured hair and brown eyes and the heaver portrait um, with the dark eyes and hair where she's holding the rose, more likely depicts her true hair colour. I think we should go with Wyatt. At no point did they ever say or do we ever hear anything in contemporary reports that she was fair skinned or light coloured in her hair. Again, I'm on your side with that one. <laughs> I've, I've still been maintaining that she had darker hair. <laughs> all right. So now, again, we, we want to stop before. We, I know we all have so many questions about her and Henry VIII, but that's a different episode. So up until the time that she met him or he started courting her, all that kind of stuff, up until the time that he was actually in her life, who do you think was the biggest influence on Anne? Well, you know, I was thinking about this question. I'd like to say her mother or her father, you know, <laughs> you would hope. But really, it depends on the word. You know, I mean, if you look at influence, is that taste or interest? 
If we look at Anne's love of, say, books and manuscripts, then she would have been influenced at a very young age by Margaret of Austria. And I think Margaret really here had the influence over her very early life. Do you know, the Burgundian Library, which Margaret liked to share with her ladies, and Anne would have been welcome to look at the books, held over 200 illuminated manuscripts, including 20 Bibles, five large books of music and endless books in astronomy, medicine, romance, etc., etc. They had fantastic illustrations, were bound with velvet, with with beautiful golden clasps, and many were inherited from Margaret of York. Now, we know Anne loved books and And I'm sure that her love of books would have stemmed from this very, very early period with Margaret. But of course, there are other things too that would have um, excited Anne. Uh, Margaret's taste in art, for instance, she had this incredible collection. It was a bit like a museum. If you can imagine a museum of different cabinets and rooms, and it was packed full of objets d'art from clocks and coral to stuffed parrots and Indian feathers. It was all there. There was so much and she loved her young maids going in and looking at the items that she'd got and um, helping her maid with her inventory later on. And we know that Anne had a fantastic, um, she had a fantastic taste in, in art. The King's Flemish goldsmith, Cornelius Hayes, in 1531, he submitted a bill for items for Anne, which included mending a little book which was garnished in France garnishing a little book with a crown gold for her. Anne was interested in art and style. And she would have also have noticed at Margaret's court the humanists who were swarming around, men like Cornelius Agrippa of Antwerp, who also also found protection under Margaret at Mechelen. Now, Margaret agreed with his statement that only masculine tyranny and lack of education prevented women from playing a role in the world equal to men. Now, Anne would have heard this. She would have been aware of this. Remember, she was about 13, 14 years old. She was, no, about 12, 12, 13. She was soaking this up like a sponge, all this wonderful information. And Margaret encouraged her ladies to to learn at every opportunity and to mix in artistic, literary, literary, educational and philosophical circles. But as to her interests, now this is something else. Anne resided at the French court for about seven years. And in that time, she began to work out her opinions. And Marguerite, sister to Francis I, seems to have interested her the most. Now, young Queen Claude, who was about the same age as Anne, married to Francois, well, her job was really to produce the heirs, which she did. And Marguerite was able to indulge her interest in the religious reform of the Catholic Church, something Anne would later do. Marguerite wanted reform of the Badiran convents and monasteries, and she visited them, them herself, and she offered help and relief. And Anne noted all of this, and she was later to do the same, helping poor students, assisting universities. Like Marguerite, Anne was a Catholic and only wanted reform within the church. Claude, too, was actually involved to some degree, and she targeted the Benedictine houses trying to uh, reform them from within. So she was. Claude was also very, very much involved. And Anne's, but Anne's books are, are tangible evidence of her interest in religious reform, which she got from Marguerite. Of the nine books who have belonged to her, six show signs of early French reformist influence. She owned Lefebvre's translation of the Bible into French and, and many others. And her, her brother George 
gave her um, a commentary on the four Gospels published in 1522 and inscribed in it to her uh, from her most loving and friendly brother. And she owned a French psalter. So I think Anne's tastes were very, very much influenced by Marguerite, to some extent Louise of Savoy, who was the king's mother, um, and also Claude as well. Claude also had an influence on Anne. You know, Claude loved fabric and clothes. She had impeccable taste. She favoured simplicity in her garments. She liked to wear her simple, plain Brittany cross. You know, she was clean and neat, and she was often given sumptuous embroidered fabrics as gifts when she was travelling. Anne, too, later, loved clothes and fabrics, and she was noted, as we know, for her clothes, you know, for her taste and her flair, and she stood out as different. So. Although the others influenced Anne on perhaps a more serious level, Claude certainly influenced her on the rules that more, sorry, that less is is more, and uh, and I think that's nice to think that Claude had some say in perhaps Anne's taste. I mean, do you agree with that? Would you think that that Claude did happen? I sure do. I think you're spot on every in every answer so far. But yes, <laughs> I definitely agree. When you started talking about her, her maybe and her, her mother and her father, I was like, get to the people, you know, the court, the queens, and all that. I that's exactly what I thought. So yeah, great. I'm absolutely. quite sure that all our listeners agree with that too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there, there was a lot of influence there, and I think she was at the perfect age um, to take all of this in and take it all on board. But you know, um, Marguerite and um, Louise Savoy were very, very careful uh with their thoughts on um on reform they didn't really they didn't keep it secret but they didn't bandy their views around very much which is quite interesting it, it still wasn't an open subject completely but we do know that Anne did follow their pattern of trying to reform the monasteries as we see in England um a great many of them did need reforming they're in a very bad way now, as you mentioned, when she came back from France, she brought the style and the taste from the French court back to England with her. Mm. And we've heard conflicting evidence on this, too. Like, there's so much, right? Mm. Um, we've heard different things. Now, did people accept it? And then it became a trend there right away? Or how long did that take? Or was it more looked upon as inappropriate because you know obviously they showed more hair and things like that so what was what was it seen as when she first came back bringing this new style and taste with her okay well i think um, the french hood um certainly hadn't been introduced by anne she didn't come back wearing the french hood that had been worn for quite a while beforehand we can see pictures say of um uh, mary tudor when she married uh, King Louis in, a, in the French hood, um, and it, it did evolve over over some years previously. Um, but I think with Anne, it was just um, do you know that je ne sais quoi, the something in her bearing, um, probably her her simplicity of dress, where other women were laden with jewels. Um, you know, Anne, perhaps I said, you know, followed Claude's. Um, example of no, no, less is more, elegance, um, a good posture, just you know, she 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 just had a different way with her, which stood out from the other women. Now, whether that was in her dress, 
um, or just in her in her sort of bearing. Uh, yes, she may have pushed the French hood back slightly more to reveal more hair. That was a little bit daring, um, but yeah, I, I think it was it was something in Anne that made her stand out. Definitely her French manners, her French ways. That would have that would have made her different, most certainly. Well, thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us. Uh, we were so lucky to have you today. I wanted to give you this opportunity to let the listeners know, are you working on anything or any books coming out, anything you want to share with us? Um, at the moment, well, I have been for the last, well, quite a few months now, actually. I'm doing part three of my books. I've got The Falcon's Rise, The Falcon's Flight, and now I'm on The Falcon's Fall, which should be and years from 1522 when she gets back into England, when she arrives back at the English court, to when she is executed in 1536. So I'm hoping to finish this and then that'll be the trilogy done. And after that, who knows? So I'm working on it slowly. Well, looking forward to that. You'll have to let us know. Uh, and before we end, I just want to give a shout out to all of our listeners who wrote in with the questions that we discussed today. So thank you to Marianne Steinkamp, Cassie Goldberg, Angela D'Antonio, Nia Unia Ucat. I'm so sorry if I don't pronounce these right. Deborah Rines, Sherry O'Neill, Trina Warrick, Katie Ray, Roy Francis, Britt GK, DW Darwin. Well, thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for the fantastic questions. They were really, really interesting. So it's wonderful. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 